welcome to the Arts Equator Theatre Podcast. This is our second part of our episode that's on Asia Topa in Melbourne and I'm here with Carolyn. Hello, Hello everyone. So let's get into it. I caught Are You Ready to Take the Law into Your Own Hands? Okay, and a bit how a, was that, Nabila? <laughs> a bit of a mouthful. Um, so that play is by Sipat Lawin and Friends. They're from the Philippines. Essentially, it was about a pop star, Gracial V, apparently Filipino's biggest pop star, of course fictional, who has been kidnapped. And essentially, only one person sees her being ki- kidnapped. And it's this like millennial fan of hers called Selena. And of course, you know, when your biggest idol is kidnapped, you like freak out, right? So she grabs her sister and they go to a police station and tries to report it. Except that apparently no crime has been reported. But on the strength of this millennial's kind of like passion and like conviction that something bad has happened, these three women essentially go and do a vigilante chase through Manila to find the kidnappers. So it's played out as like a B-grade live action movie type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's starting to sound like it. And and essentially like along the way they get caught in like um, a really bad traffic jam in a jeepney um, where for some reason the kidnappers actually find them and they have to do a dance battle with the kidnappers. <laughs> um, and also the kidnappers are actually uh, played by a dance group that's uh, also a kind of like a it's called the House of Divine. So they're kind of a, like a drag or dance uh, troupe. Um, and they are from Melbourne. So, you know, as with a lot of these Asia Topa shows, they are collaborations between, you know, certain countries with Australia or with Melbourne. But the piece actually, even though it sounds really fun and really kind of madcap, the play is also talking about like politics or, you know, the politics of the people in the Philippines uh, affected by certain, you know, things that are happening in the administration, in the current landscape. And without naming names, without actually telling you, you know, this is what's happening, they give you a sense that Filipino people, they are trying their best to live their lives out large, even with the issues and the problems that comes with living in the country um, in the current moment. It's quite interesting because they use a lot of Tagalog without subtitles. There is um, the writer and the director of the show actually feature in the show as well. Um, the writer interviews the director, like, oh, what was it like to create this show, you know? And at first it seems like it's a serious thing, but as the scenes go by, the more and more you you watch this quote-unquote interview, suddenly one person speaks in Tagalog or um, certain parts of the thing will be all in Tagalog and you're just like, uh, you, you know, you're a bit lost but it's mm. essentially, you know what's happening, right? They are reasserting Filipino pride in language and uh, culture and, and there's also elements of traditional dancing. There's like fan dancing and I think fingernail dancing which sounds really cool. Interspersed with voguing, interspersed mm. with, you know, Filipino songs, Kaliwe Jepsen songs. I just love that it was Filipino culture come alive. Everyone was there to kind of like have a good time. Mm. So I was really glad for the festival to have given the stage to Sipat Lawin Ensemble, a young theatre group from Manila. Everything kind of came together as a very energetic burst of passion for the country, passion for the Philippines, but also an acknowledgement that things need to change. So there was an element of like social change and social justice through theatre, which is like really powerful, I think. Well, speaking of social messages, Hades Fading, and just my initial feelings about it is that it seemed to me like a community arts event, something that you would see in a warung or in a small village or a town, the equivalent of a community centre, for example. It had shades of the Wayang Kulit, which is your shadow puppet theatre. 
not only from the social message standpoint, mm. but also from the set design. There were translucent muslin Sleeves. drapes, yeah. yeah, and and there were like three layers of those, and the musicians were set to the back of the stage. Uh, the music was live, yeah. which which added that very natural, authentic feel to the performance. Mm. So essentially, the show is is set in Hades. As you know, the title suggests, Hades fading, because of how like, today's world, people have forgotten Hades, people have forgotten these Greek tragedies, and by extension, people have forgotten our connections to the natural world that we come from. So, um, yeah, in the show, we follow Eurydice, who is um, played by Heliana Sinaga. She is dressed in this beautiful kind of like wedding dress that's merging with like newspapers, right? It's kind of like they have newspapers strewn around her dress. So she's kind of like rising from the floor. Um, Hades is kind of described as a, like a library of sorts. And she wakes up and she doesn't know where she is. Um, and so because she wants to find out where she's from, she starts to open up a book, right? And then she's like, oh, okay, so um, apparently she comes from this place. But then she reads another book, and then the book says she comes from another place. And so like, there's all this information, almost like information overload, and she's like, I don't know where I come from. But there are like cheeky references. So instead of like opening a book, she would be like typing on a laptop. So, so there was a kind of like uh, incursions of like modern technology that came into the natural world that we were physically presented with uh, mm-hmm. that were quite cheeky. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with the set design, right, um, you have uh, something that looks like a very traditional Wayankulit sort of setup, but the projections and the, uh, the lighting mm. and even the, the sounds that are created both by the musicians as well as by the sound designer... Mm are just such a blend of traditional and contemporary. One of the elements that is quite interesting in this piece was actually the use of humour and, and when they would use humour. Because as you said, the message is a social message of like the world kind of dying, climate change. So it's very, very serious. But they would always have like cheeky kind of like touches that will make you like, even if you don't laugh, you smile. There was one part where there was like a chorus of voices. So the word that was quite distinct that I remember is like buku. So it'd be like, buku, 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 you know. Of course, in a more melodic kind of way. But, but buku means book yeah. in Malay. Yeah. Um, but the way they said it and the repetitiveness of it made it also sound like a bird chirping. Buku, yes. buku, buku, buku. Yes. And besides buku, there was like CD and flash disk and, and a lot of other words as well. So, and sometimes when you hear the word, like something like flash disk sounds absurd to yes. hear in a choir or yeah. natural sound. But I feel where the humour was very, very obvious was with the character of Orpheus, right? Mm-hmm. Who is Eurydice's lover, where he actually breaks the fourth wall and comes into the audience. And, and Orpheus is traditionally known as a character that plays, I think he plays an instrument. So he loves music and yes. stuff. And in this iteration of the story, he wants to build a recording A recording studio. studio. So he comes out uh, from behind the the, the muslin drapes yeah. and then he interacts with the audience. Yeah. And so this is where um, the audience is not quite sure how to deal with it because oh, it's like we're, we're watching something mm. behind all these drapes and then yeah. suddenly, boom, we're confronted with him straight on. Yeah, and he's kind of like a showman. Like, yes. Like he wants you to laugh at his, you know, his little antics, his physical like flourishes. There were those like bizarre kind of elements that made you laugh. And there were people in the audience who were laughing their heads off. At Throughout the entire <laughs> performance. Yeah, which was kind of disturbing for me sometimes. Yes. Um, because I don't think it was always that f- meant to be that funny. No, I think the chuckling might have been a coping mechanism 
of dealing with some discomforts. Mm. Discomfort whether in understanding or not recognising mm. what's going on, uh, not being familiar with a certain cultural practice or yeah. culture even. Yeah. And because it was it was Bahasa Indonesia interspersed mm. with English and yes. yes, there was sufficient translation, but still there might have been moments where members of the audience would have missed the translations or there would have been moments of non-understanding mm. or even maybe misunderstanding. And so yeah. that could create feelings of discomfort. I think so. The writer and the theatre maker is Sandra Fiona Long. So this is a collaboration, once again, of Indonesian and Australian artists. We did want to mention a uh, shout-out to the Tempeh. <laughs> yes, because this was the premiere, yeah. the world premiere, and it was the opening show. There were nibbles, yeah. and we got the chance also to interact and have a chat with the, the, the team that yeah. put this together. And yes, shout out to the tempeh because mm. we were kind of missing the mm. Asian food. And to accompany the tempeh, oh, yeah, who yeah. was some, seriously, <laughs> who was some wicked sambal. It really lends to the whole experience because you can have a collaboration of Australia, Indonesia in name. To have tempeh and spring roll, I felt like the thought there it extended the whole experience yeah. for, for us so that's why Tempeh was worth talking about um, moving on to another Southeast Asian work that I caught is called A.O. Lang Fo um, it's from Vietnam it's essentially a Vietnamese bamboo circus and the director of it was from Cirque du Soleil actually so you can imagine um, maybe some of the technical feats that would come out from it or the world building that would come from having been in Cirque du Soleil but this was a world building that was a Vietnamese world a very specific real person from Vietnam uh, from the villagers kind of perspective so it's a bamboo circus which means that all the props that they used uh, whether big or small were either made of bamboo or made of rattan so we had huge domes made of weaved rattan or bamboo and there were also hoops bamboo poles and these were like some of them are huge right so for example if you imagine like a giant bamboo pole they were essentially like juggling them with each other across the large stage and, and these were predominantly like very muscular 20 year old boys who were just very very acrobatic you would have to be yes. yeah you need you need to have all those muscles to do all the feats of strength that they're doing because they were doing things like trapeze uh, acts aerial kind of display of things but all with bamboo elements so that was cool I feel like people have to go and Google it to really see what, what, what I'm talking about. But what was more interesting was actually how they depicted Vietnamese life on stage. So, for example, like it would start with fishermen fishing. They would use bamboo poles. And then at one point, they all become like frogs and they are like, you know, ribbiting around with a dome on their backs. But then it quickly becomes like a construction scene where they use the bamboo poles to create scaffolding. And later on, they depict people in Vietnamese villages living in close quarters to each other so there was one quite funny sequence where uh, these two lovers are like basically trying to you know have some quality time together but they have neighbours very close above them who are like pounding on some spices and making a huge noise so obviously it spoils the mood right and so then the girlfriend goes and takes a bamboo pole and like pokes the ceiling and so there's a little squabbling that goes on and it's it's all very very funny and very cheeky also if you think about it they are not actors right so it's more like physical uh, gags that are taking place credit to them all these acrobats they nailed all the comedic timing all the physical kind of movements that they were doing a o lang fo it means from village to city 
So that's why this idea of like urbanization mm. and how it affects real Vietnamese people. And it was also accompanied by very traditional type of Vietnamese music. So they, they were using instruments like the two-chord fiddle and the plug lute. But there was also beatboxing. There was also hip-hop dancing and b-boying, you know. So there was a sense of contemporary and traditional that I didn't expect. Okay. And I think with A.O. Lang Fo, it's a bit hard to really tell someone about it. It's one mm. of those things where like, just watch it. It was right. amazing. Which is probably how I feel about Dragon Ladies Don't Weep mm. by Margaret Leng Tan. Wow, where do I begin? Because mm. any superlative that I use is just going to shortchange Margaret Leng Tan for her artistry, for her grace, her style, her physicality. Mm. It was, for want of a better word, a brilliant performance. She's a Singapore-born... Um. Uh, avant-garde um, musician mm. who is known globally as the queen of the toy piano. Mm. She basically brought the toy piano to life and essentially said that, yes, this is a very real instrument. Mm. This was a one-night-only world premiere here in Melbourne as yeah. part of Asia Topa. And it's where she comes clean about her OCD, her mm. obsessive compulsive disorder, which manifests itself in counting. And with counting, you can see that, and she says this line in the performance, music is where counting belongs. Mm. And so the performance essentially is a chronicle of the people, situations and influences that shaped her life and her music. So it's autobiographical in nature, which is why she can talk about her OCD. And you can see that music is where she was meant to be. Mm. And I think the world can be very grateful that she recognised that and right. has thrown herself into it. Rather than her usual kind of concerts, this one is a bit more, what, what do you say, is theatrical? Like Certainly theatrical and there's a there's a good mix of her playing on the piano as well as the toy piano mm. and also uh, the toys, physical toys that she, she plays with and she's also known for that as in mm. she, like, she can take a can of uh, coffee for example and turn it into an instrument right. so in this particular performance uh, there is her also actually addressing the audience and there's projections at the back as well yeah. mainly lines and geometrical shapes which lend weight to the whole OCD thing about counting right. and the counting bit also shows itself up in a particular scene where she is recounting mm a story of how she she tenaciously pursued professionally yeah. uh, the late John Cage. Mm. And we all know John Cage, is uh, he was one of um, the US's major contemporary composers yeah. and he was also the uh, lifelong partner and collaborator of Merce Cunningham. There's a sense of like the importance of this woman and this talent Yes, um, and, and at her age as well. Like. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing. She sits and stands. She even she even lies down on the f floor at one point. Mm. And at the age of seventy four, to be able to get up again, yes, it, it is difficult. Yeah. Um, but she does it so flawlessly and so elegantly that it's really hashtag life goals. You know, yeah. it's like when I grow up. I want to be yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but what I also appreciated about uh, her performance is that she peppers it with her thought process. Mm. Or, she, or at least she gives us a glimpse into her thought process, mm. which I interpret as being extremely critical, crucial to her grounding as right. a person. Mm. So she came across also as very human and not somebody who's totally lost in her, in her artistic bubble to the point of narcissism. Mm. So, for example, she has this thing called the DRC, the Daily Reality Check. 
And how she shared this with the audience was that she would have like a tenant, if you will, that was flashed on the projection behind. So the first one that came up was every day, 100 elephants are poached or slaughtered for their ivory. Mm. And immediately there's a sense of dread and, and, and gloom in, every, in the pit of everybody's stomach. And then she turns to the audience, she says, toy pianos do not kill any elephants. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's, um, it's a brilliant thought process because it indicates, or at least it hints to us, that she is aware yeah. of what's going on in the world. She takes in what's going on in the world mm. and she establishes her position in that world. So those were actually all the shows that we've caught in this one week of being in Asia Topa. And I'm also conscious of the fact that Asia Topa runs till March. So there's a lot of other shows as well that we wish we could catch, but obviously we only have a limited time here. But mm -hmm. what were some of the highlights for you? Well, and I think you will agree with me that we, we were just very taken by the curation and the programming mm. of Asia Topa. They, I think they've done a really good job of ensuring that, as you said, Nabila, this Asian world or the mm. Southeast Asian world is is really a part, should be a part of our consciousness and should yeah. be a part of our awareness. It's not something exotic yes. that you go to a special place to see. Correct. Marvel at it, poke at the artists and say, oh, are they real or something yeah. like that, you know? And in part of the contemporary performing arts landscape as well, like, we are not you know, museum kind of pieces. It doesn't always have to be reverential or, or traditional or, you know, state or static. It's very dynamic. Mm. It's very alive. It's very current. Yeah. Um, you know, things like climate change and all is all in our collective consciousness. Um, and I really got that sense of a shared kind of world from uh, watching some of the shows in Asia Topa. Yeah, and um, you say the word state, and certainly it was not the shows <laughs> that we watched were not at all state. No. Um, we both liked metal, for, for yeah. instance. Um, that was the collaboration between Lucy Guerin and uh, Ensemble Tikoro. So it's uh, dance Australian contemporary dance mixed with heavy metal. From Bandung. Yeah, but heavy metal as we don't know it yeah, because right. it, it, it was just a whole bunch of throat singing, basically. And... Asia Topa prides itself in presenting new work. So this, to me, was certainly new work because it's not something that you would e even imagine and, yeah. uh, or even think possible. So yeah, I look forward to the next edition of Asia Topa because this is only the second time they've done it. It feels like it's an established festival. Yeah, um, yeah and that's going to be in 2023. So yeah, that's exciting. Another thing that I think we both resonated with is um, how everyone will always pay tribute, pay respect to the land, pay respect to the people who own the land um, from on which we stand. So there was always a verbal um, respect that was given. And, and I resonated with this one line where they always say, um, or they say a version of, I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and I like that because it's a bit like what we say, like not everything is, is um, about the past. Like it's also about the present and, and the future. What's and the to come. And what's to come is a shared future. But we all have to be in it together. We all have to respect each other's cultures. Yes. And I, I, I hope that it's a practice that we could bring back with us. So far, it's the chilli and the onion that we bury in the ground <laughs> to <laughs> ward off rain. <laughs> But that kind of like connection to the land, I think we can do more of in Singapore, for sure. I agree. <laughs> and I think we also got to connect with a lot of our Southeast Asian colleagues and compatriots in the art scene and had a lot of uh, kind of invigorating conversations about the region and, and kind of trying to negotiate how we feel about 
being in Australia, seeing Southeast Asian works outside of like Southeast Asia, like what that means. Because it's not clear cut, you know, it's not always beautiful and, and, and perfect. Uh, what does it mean to be an, a Southeast Asian in Australia? And having those conversations with our colleagues, I think, was quite enriching. Yeah. Um, it's been a week here in Melbourne as part of Asia Topa. And Asia Topa is actually Asia Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, in case anyone was wondering. And we look forward to you know future iterations. And thank you so much, Asia Topa, for having Arts Equator, me and Caroline here. Um, it was a, pr- a privilege and an honour to watch all these shows. Um, and Melbourne has been also lovely to us, so... Yes, thank you very much, Asia Topa, and thank you, Melbourne. Yes, thank you. Goodbye. Bye.